So this morning we're going to talk about be careful, do not fall. We're in the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 10. There are a few things that Paul mentions here that truly are kind of revolutionary. And I think they can help us in a long way in how we're going to uh, walk with God. The first thing he talks about is the fact that, hey, I'm talking to a bunch of people who are already in the church. I'm talking to baptized believers. Paul alludes back to the, those who travel with Moses from the land of Egypt. They went through the river. You guys remember the story? This, the Red Sea divides and the people walk through on dry ground. And Paul kind of makes an allusion to that. And he says, they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food, drank the same drink. They drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. Did you know Jesus was in the desert? He's there. Maybe that's why I like the desert so much. I don't know. But Jesus was there with him in the desert. But the thing I wanted you to realize about this is Paul is talking to people who are believers in Jesus Christ. These are baptized believers. These are people who have made the decision to accept Christ, put them on in baptism. And now, how do you live? Years ago, decades ago, I don't remember the exact year, but somewhere back in the 70s, Francis Schaeffer wrote a book. Anybody even know who Francis Schaeffer is in the room? Am I that old? One person. It's my wife. Because two of us, all right, three of us, all right. He was a guy, he's dead now, he's been long gone, but he was kind of a theological writer and he wrote a book entitled, How Should We Then Live? Great title to a book. It was actually a good read. I encourage you, if you've never read the book, you can find it probably in a used bookstore somewhere. How Should We Then Live? It's a great read. And this is about how should we then live. Yeah, we're baptized believers. You know, there's a verse of Scripture somewhere in the Bible that goes something like this. Should we continue in sin that grace abound? And the writer says what? No, God forbid. Just because we're a baptized believer doesn't mean we can live any way we want to live. We have responsibilities. As a matter of fact, Jesus raised the bar considerably as to how we should live when he gave us the Sermon on the Mount. He did. He raised the bar significantly. It's not as easy as it used to be. We think it's easier, but let me tell you, the bar has been raised. The significance of how we live is different than what it was for the Jews who were in the days of Jesus and those who were before him. All of these people that Paul's talking to, they're baptized believers. We in the room are baptized believers. And this conversation is about how we should live even when we're being tempted. Because the reality is all of us at some time or another are probably tempted with something. Yes? Is that fair? If everyone would, if I were to ask how many of you have ever been tempted in your life, could everybody in the room stand up? Yes. At least twice? Yes. A day? Maybe. Depends on you and your life. But I mean, that's the reality of who we are. We're people. And the one thing that I know about this world in which we live, the devil doesn't want to go to hell alone. Sounds silly, doesn't it? But the Satan that is the tempter of all, he doesn't want to spend eternity in hell alone. He wants to take as many of the people in the world as he possibly can. And he's done a pretty good job with it. Because there are a whole lot of people who never accept Christ. There are a whole lot of people who never baptized for the remission of their sins, who put on Jesus as their Lord and said, there are a lot of people who have never done that. He's won that battle, but he hasn't won the battle with us. The challenge that we face, though, is how do we live when there's temptation? Because temptation will come. Nevertheless, God wasn't pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. You remember the story. The children of Israel come out of, the, out of Egypt. They're going into the promised land. And how many years did they get to wander in the desert? Forty years. Forty years. Come June, I will have been married. Is there a correlation? No. No. It's been joyful 40 years for me, I can tell you. 
it hasn't been, it hasn't been the barren wasteland. It's been amazing. My 40 years has been great. Some of you longer, married longer than that. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. But I want you to realize that 40 years they wandered in the desert because of the hardness of their heart, because of bad things that they've done, because of stuff that they did that they shouldn't have done. And God knew that about them. Even though they were his chosen people, they were his family, they were his beloved, they were the ones who were going to spend eternity with him in heaven, guess what? They spent time away from God in the desert for 40 years. So you see, even though God loved them, there are still things that came upon them and happened to them in their lives that caused them challenges. There were. Paul talks about a few of them. They're given as our example. The first one is idolatry. Do not be an idolater, as some of them were. It was written that people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. Probably what Paul was alluding to was when Moses had gone up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. You remember the story? He's up on the mountain, and then word comes to him, hey, the people are down there, and they're doing crazy stuff. They had had a celebration, they'd done this, and then what did they do? They took the gold, they brought it all together because Moses had been gone so long. They're like, hey, we need something to worship because this God that we're supposed to be worshiping, he took Moses away and we don't know when he's coming back, so we're going to make our own. And they created the golden calf. God was not happy with their idolatry. So here's my question for you. Uh, What is your golden calf? What is your golden calf? What have you created in your world that you give your time to, your worship to, your heart to, your soul to? What is there in your world? Now, guys, let me just talk with you for a minute because I'm just going to be very candid this morning because I'm a guy and I can relate to you just a little bit better than I can to some of you ladies here in the room. I'm going to tell you what one of the greatest challenges we have as men that we make into an idol. It's called work. I'm just being candid. I know we have a responsibility to provide for our families. I get that. I totally get that. The Bible says, Paul writes in another verse, he says, if you don't provide for your family, you're worse than an infidel, right? So I agree. We need to provide for our families. But I want you to know that it is easy for men to make work their God. You know, I've been working in the funeral business now for 10 years. I've stood at the graveside of literally hundreds and hundreds of people who've been buried. I have never, in all of the funerals I've attended and all the people and families that I've talked to or buried somebody, I have never had anybody say, he really wished he could have spent more time at work before he died. I've never heard anybody say that. Now, I've heard all kinds of people say, I wish I could have spent more time with my family. I wish I could have loved my kids more. I wish I'd lived long enough to see my grandkids. That's what I'm thinking. I'm just... I'm telling you, I've never heard anybody say, though, I wish I could spend more time at work before I died. That's crazy. Nobody thinks that way when they're about to face their deathbed. They don't think like that. They think about things that are important to them, like family and their kids and their spouse. Those things are important. Work can become your idol. And I get it. We all have to work. But guys, let me caution you not to make work your idol. There are more important things than the job. For the rest of us in the room, ladies, it's not your shoes or your clothes or your hair. It's not, it's not the stuff that's the outward beautiful things that, make you, that you can adorn yourself with that makes you beautiful. That's not your God. I was blown away the other day. I don't remember where I saw the ad, but I saw an ad somewhere that says, Kylie Jenner is a billionaire and she's a billionaire because she sells lipstick. I'm like, what? 
Lipstick. I went to the doctor the other day. This little bandage is because I'm getting rid of the skin cancer that some of you keep asking me about. So I'm getting rid of this stuff. But when I was at the doctor's office, I don't even know how, but the doctor and the doctor has this, her little sister that works with her and they were, they were doing this stuff to my head and we were talking and chatting because they didn't put me to sleep, which is good. And we were talking about her being a billionaire and said, oh yeah, we help her. I'm like, what do you mean you help her? I said, we buy all her lipstick. <laughs> and who knows how many tubes of lipstick they have. Ladies, I'm telling you, there are a lot of things in the world that can get your attention, that can become your idol and your God. Let me share something else with you ladies. Just telling you straight up. Just being transparent today. you got to be careful. You have to be careful. Those of you who are married especially, that you don't place your kids as an idol above your husband. Now that may sound a little weird, but let me tell you a secret. God willing, those kids are going to leave home. And then guess who you're left with? You get my point? That man that you're married to, he's going to be with you for a long, long time, God willing. He will be with you for 50, 60, maybe 67 or 8 years. Okay? And if you have given 128% of your time to your kids and ignored your husband, you're creating a nightmare. Because when that kid is 18, 19, 20 years old and goes to college or military or does whatever he or she's going to do and you're left there with your spouse, now guess what you have to do? You've got to figure out how to live with each other again. And that's hard. And sometimes it doesn't work well. And marriages don't make it in that 18th to 20th year because the kids are gone and they're like, now what do we do? And life is not about watching television all night. Okay? It's not. It's not about watching TV at night. Six o'clock, both of you are home from work, you sit down and grab TV dinner or whatever it is you eat for dinner, and then you watch TV till you go to sleep and you go to bed. That's not life. That's not living. Be careful about the idols that you set up in your life because they'll break you down. They'll break down your life, and it won't be very fun living. Another thing he talks about, sexual immorality. We talked about this last week, week before, for a little bit. And I just want you to realize that sexual immorality hasn't changed in the last two weeks. It's still there. And it's still a major problem. And it's still a major issue for some more than others. But Paul says we should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. As in one day, 23,000 of them died. That's a story that goes back to when some of the Israelites started uh, having adulterous relationships with uh, the people from the foreign land that they were next door to and they started going to the pagan temples and they started getting caught up in all of the stuff that they were doing and all of a sudden God realizes that these people have fallen from me and he came down and he struck some of them dead. You know the most exciting thing about being in the New Testament era? God doesn't do that very often anymore. Do you realize that if God still worked exactly the same way that he worked during the days that these people were walking around in the desert for 40 years, that about two-thirds to maybe three-thirds of our nation would be gone? You get that? I'm telling you guys, sexual immorality is rampant. And it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Even when you don't want it to be there, it's there. I went to dinner, the little yacht club that we belong to over at the marina. I went to dinner last night. They were serving brisket. I can't resist. I should never eat that stuff because I was up all night with a bellyache. But I couldn't resist, so I went to eat it. But I sat down. I'm sitting by two other men uh, and, and actually three other men. And this lady comes, and she plops herself down. And 
this is an expression that we used in Alabama. She's drunk as a skunk. I mean, she just can't even hardly walk. She almost fell in my lap, literally. And the guy sitting across from me, Mike, I asked Mike, I said, do you know her? He said, nope. He said, but she's hit on me the last four times I've been here. Seriously, that was, he said, she's hit on me the last four times I've been here. I'm like, and, and she was just out of it. She's totally out. It's everywhere, guys. It's everywhere. You have to be careful. You have to guard yourself against those things. You don't go into a room with no windows if you're at work. You can't afford to do that because somebody can make an accusation and then you're defending yourself against an accusation whether it's true, whether it's true or not. You don't go to places where there are people who shouldn't be there. Look, I personally, I'm just telling you, when I meet somebody of the opposite sex, sometimes even the same sex, but I'm telling you, when I meet someone of the opposite sex and they don't know me very well within the first two minutes of that conversation, I'm talking about what me and my wife do. You want to know why? Because I don't want any woman to ever get any funny ideas about what I might be interested in. And ladies, look, man, there's some guys out there, they can sweet talk you like you ain't never been talked to. And you might like that. Well, you better be careful with that. You shouldn't like it too much. And if someone starts doing that kind of stuff with you, you better put up the barriers. You put up the walls. You make the statements and let them know, hey, you know what? This is not who I am, and I'm not interested. Because sexual immorality is out there. And it's everywhere. And you can't get away from it. And you and I have to guard against it. And God has given us the tools to do it. We just have to do it. Paul goes on then, he says, you shouldn't test the Lord as some of these did and were killed by snakes. You know what that's all about? They didn't like the way Moses had been ruling. They didn't like the way that he had lorded it over them. And so a bunch of them get together and they come and find them and say, hey, we don't like what you're doing, we're going to take over. We're going to start doing our own thing and we're not going to listen to you anymore. And they tested the Lord. As a matter of fact, they tested, the Israelites tested God several times when they were in the wilderness, hence the 40 years. So let me share this with you. I know that I serve in a capacity of preaching minister on Sunday, and I serve in a capacity of an elder. And there are other men in this church that are elders. There are other men in this church that are deacons. And you know what? Sometimes, sometimes the eldership and the deacons in the church have to make decisions. And sometimes they're not necessarily popular with some of us in the church. Is that okay to say that? Like when some of you came here today, you might have been like, oh my, where, where did all the trees go? They're gone. We're not putting them back next week. We took them down for a reason. You know, it's the first time in who knows how many years you could see the church building from the corner. Somebody made a comment to me this morning, hey, people are going to show up in the community and say, hey, they built a church over the weekend. Because they haven't seen it in so long. That's the truth. You couldn't see the building for the trees. It's not the forest for the trees. You couldn't see the building for the trees, so we took care of that. And I know that doesn't make some people happy, and it's probably not the funnest thing you've ever seen, and, and, and you'd prefer that we not cut the trees down. I get all that. I get it. There's a reason. We would like people to know we're here. We really would. We'd love for pe more people to know that we're here. We'd like people who drive by the building to know there's a church here. Because I've talked to people, you've talked to people in this community, they say, where do you go to church? And you tell them. And they're like, where's that at? It's the corner of Felipe and Margaret. I didn't know there's a church there. Well, there's a sign on the corner, but they can't read. But they never saw the church, just for whatever. And guess what? That's not the last decision that any eldership in this church, in the history of this church, will ever make that somebody's not going to like. Amen? Amen. Welcome to life. Welcome to people. Welcome to decisions that have to be made. And I don't know what those decisions are. I don't know. 
I don't know what they'll ever be. But we have to be careful not to grumble and complain just because we don't like something. And that goes way beyond just church. I had an amazing opportunity a few years ago when I moved to Texas. I worked in the home office of a $3 billion corporation. 17-story building. 14th through 17th floor were the, all the upper management. CEO, CFO, all those guys were on the 17th floor in the penthouse. You know what I learned working there? There are a lot of decisions made at the corporate level by people on the 17th, 16th, 15th floor that a lot of people in the field didn't like. But they made those decisions because they had a better perspective on the whole company and what was going on with the company than what anybody in the field will ever have. Does that make sense? So sometimes when people make decisions, we may not like it. And that happens with you at work, at your jobs, if you still work. I promise you, somebody, your boss, somebody up the food chain is going to make a decision like, why in the world did they do that? It's because they know more than you know. They do. And they have a perspective that maybe you don't have. And that's okay. Javon, does that happen in the military ever? At least twice? I mean, come on, that's the world we live in. I'm telling you guys, there are decisions that are made here I don't necessarily like all the decisions that elderships make. I'm an elder in this church. But I support all the decisions that are made. I want you to realize that as a church body, if we truly, truly want to serve and honor God, we got to come together as a family. We have to be one in heart and mind and soul in what we speak so that what we say, what we think, and what we speak and what we do are all the same thing because then you have continuity and everything, and amazing things really can happen. Be careful about grumbling. As a matter of fact, that's exactly the next thing that Paul says. Do not grumble. As some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. Same kind of deal. They're out in the wilderness. They're grumbling, complaining about this and that. All of a sudden, the Lord says, that's it. I'm done. Moses, get out of the way because I'm coming through. And he sent the, the destroying, whatever you want to call it, angel, however the translation refers to it, down. And all of a sudden, thousands and thousands of people are dead again. All because they were grumbling. They didn't like the food. They didn't. They didn't like the food. They came from a land flowing with milk and honey. In their minds, they came from Egypt. They had everything they ever needed. I guess they had forgotten that they were slaves. And they're griping about the food. They griped about a lot of stuff. Don't grumble. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. See, this is the thing that really, really is important to us. We have to be really, really careful. When we think we're our strongest, when we think we're standing strong, we have to be careful at those times, maybe more so than any other time, that we don't fall. I've known a lot of people, myself included, who seem to have everything going for them and got just a little bit too cocky, too big for our own britches. You know what that means? Got a little bit too big for ourselves. And all of a sudden, bang! It all comes apart. And then you wonder why. Well, why are you wondering? You knew it was coming. You were just playing games with yourself. You were playing games with God. You thought you had everything under control. And you didn't have anything under control. You were just playing games. I'm telling you guys, be careful 
Because when you think you're standing the strongest, that may be the time that you are most vulnerable. And that's a scary place to be. God hasn't called us to be arrogant. He hasn't called us to be people who are make our own way. He hasn't called us to be people who can stand up with both fists and shake them at God and say, I got this. He's called us to be people of humility, who depend upon him, who come to him in prayer and supplication, petition with everything and everything, and everything bring your prayers to God. What does that leave out? There goes Paul again, those crazy words, those everything kinds of words. It doesn't leave anything out. And yet you and I live our lives constantly thinking that, oh, I, can't, I got this. It's okay. I got it. I'm, I'm good. And we're standing up tall, and all of a sudden, bang, God knocks it out from under us. Be careful. Be careful. Be careful. When you think you're standing tall and strong, because that may be your most vulnerable position. So the reality is, though, that God, Paul writes that God is always with us. He says, no temptation seized you except what is common to man. There's nothing new under the sun. Does that sound familiar? There's nothing new. You think we're having political problems now? Are you kidding me? We've already been through this. We've already been through this several times because this isn't the first Congress. This isn't the first president we've ever had that didn't get along. As a matter of fact, I don't know ones that have ever got along. There's nothing new under the sun. You having trouble at work? Guess what? Get another job. Guess what you're going to have there? More trouble. It just happens. That's, that's life. Temptation, no temptation sees you except what is common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. And see, here's the rub. This is the real hard part for us. We talked about this briefly in the class this morning, in the adult class. We're looking at the book of Romans. The challenge that we have is that when we are tempted, we think we got it. And we don't exercise faith and discernment to allow God to get us through. And I know we're like that. I know we are, because I'm like that. And I guarantee you, I could sit down with some of you guys, especially, we could have conversations about things that we've dealt with, things that we worked through, problems we've dealt with at work, problems we've dealt with with our families, problems we've dealt with with finances, and we always figure out a way to get through it, don't we? So where's God in all that? Now, I don't believe that we can sit on the side of the hill and wait on God to fly a roasted duck in our mouth so we can eat today. We have responsibilities. We all have responsibilities to provide for ourselves, to provide for our families. We have a responsibility to be the person that God wants us to be. But realize that when we are tempted, when something comes your way that is a true temptation that's causing you to be pulled away from God, He is there and He is anxious to help you get through it. But too many times we try to do it on our own by ourselves, and we don't depend upon God. And I'm asking you to realize that God is there. And he wants to help you through. He wants you to depend on him. My wife and I have two sons. Matt is 36. Tom's 34. I remember when
when they were little. And we lived in Atlanta. And there were things that the guys would want or things they would want to do. And they'd come to mom and dad and say, hey, mom, can we do this? Mom, can I have this? Dad, can we go do this? Dad, can I? And they were always coming to us and asking us for things. And sometimes we would oblige them. Sometimes we would accommodate. Sometimes we'd go have fun or we'd do things. And sometimes we said no because you just can't always give your kid candy. You know what I'm saying? They're 36 and 34 now. And they still talk to us occasionally. But they don't ask us for much anymore. Because they're grown men with great jobs, great lives, and they're making it on their own. But I'm telling you, as a father of just two boys, I would love for them to call me someday and say, hey, Dad, how do I? How can I? Can you? Would you? And I would drop everything I'm doing to do it. And I believe with all of my heart that God, who is our Father, sometimes looks at us who are his grown children in faith and he wishes so much that we talk to him and ask him to help us through. God has never gone anywhere. He's still here. He just wants us to draw near to Him and to call on Him and to let Him enjoy and bask in the wonder again of Him being able to help us get through some of this stuff. Because that makes Him feel so good. He's calling right now. He's calling right now. He wants you to answer that phone and say, hey, what's up? It's me. I'm here. My dear brother, George Gatti, stood about this tall next to me from Liberia, West Africa. He showed up at my church in Atlanta one day. He became a dear, dear brother and dear friend to me. And every single time he would call me on the phone, he'd say, Bishop, I'm here. I'm here. And it was such a wonderful expression that he shared with me on the phone. And he could be in Africa, he could be in London, he could be in Alabama, he could be in Georgia. There's no telling where he was at when he called me. He said, Bishop, I'm here. I said, George, when are we going to see each other? I'll be there Tuesday. Three weeks from Tuesday, he'd show up. That was just George. But wouldn't it be nice to know that God is here? And he will help us through anything, regardless of the temptation. You don't have to do it alone. You don't have to try to stand tall and man your way through it or woman your way through it. Just the best way to do it is probably fall down on your face. Fall down on your feet. 
or on your knees, give it to God. He'd love for you to. He'd love for you to say, hey, man, can you help me with this? No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. God is always there. It is only up to us to ask him to join us in the journey. Brandon is going to come and lead us in this song, Beautiful One. And I invite you as we stand and sing this song to think about your relationship with Christ, your relationship with God, and most especially your relationship with them when times are really tough. And I invite you to make sure that your heart is right with him so that when you do pick up and say, hey, God, you're there. He said, yes, I'm here. Let's encourage one another. If we can help in any way, let us know. Let's stand and sing this song. Come on.